ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm pleased to bring you the second half of my conversation with Dr. Ann Gager about her personal journey to becoming one of the well-known figures in the debate over evolution and intelligent design. Previously, Dr. Gager shared her experiences growing up and her schooling, earning a degree in biology from MIT, a PhD in zoology from the University of Washington, and postdoc work in molecular biology at Harvard. In the next part of our conversation, she shares a personal and family challenge that took her out of active research for many years, and how she later became acquainted with intelligent design and returned to active work in her love of biology. Dr. Gager shares what it has meant to her to continue pursuing the evidence where it leads, even in the face of challenges. We now rejoin the conversation with Dr. Gager explaining what happened toward the end of her postdoc research at Harvard. At the end of the postdoc phase, which was 1992, I discovered that my eldest, my daughter, was developmentally delayed. Okay. Hmm. She was significantly delayed, and, and we now know she has a form of autism. So I decided I needed to stay home with the kids, take care of them. They were my priority. So I said goodbye to science yet again. Wow. Having, having done it after MIT, and now I'm doing it after my postdoc. So are you back in Seattle at this point, or where are you, where are you living at We were in Boston, in Boston. Harvard. Okay. My husband took a job in New Hampshire, and then when that ended, he got a job in Seattle. So okay. we came back. Right, that's right. Came. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant after, after Harvard. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're in Seattle. You've made a pretty significant shift there to say, I'm going to stay home because that's what matters and mm-hmm. take care of, of my children, particularly this daughter. Mm-hmm. And then uh, how did you... Let's kind of shift a little bit. How did you become acquainted with intelligent design at first? When did you first hear about that? Probably 2001, 2002. The way it happened was, okay, I had forgotten about science. I just put it behind me. Hadn't been following it or anything. Mm -hmm. And I had a dream, a recurring dream. It started out of nowhere saying I was knocking on the doors of my professor's at MIT and at Harvard and saying, would you take me back, please? I know how to finish my research. Oh. And I had no clue what, why the stream was happening repeatedly. And then about the same time, I developed a fascination with the story of evolution and biology and why it seemed that people were disbelieving in God because of science. It seemed to me that was just backwards. Science didn't point away from God. It pointed toward God. Mm. I knew I knew en- enough from my own studies that there was no way you could explain what there was in, in biology, what there was in life by a purely random mutational process coupled to natural selection. Right. It was too... Um, too root a mechanism to ever create the in- intricacies of life. So having come to that conclusion that it didn't explain um, intricacy of life, I then said, okay, is there anything else out there? And is anyone else bothered by this evolutionary story? And so I started looking and I pretty quickly came upon intelligent design. Mm -hmm. 
And I read Darwin on Trial. Okay, sure. Philip Johnson's classic, yep. I wasn't convinced by it because he was a lawyer. (laughs) He wrote like a lawyer. I don't want to listen to lawyers. (laughs) Well, no, his references were old. (laughs) And so, you know, you got to have up-to-date stuff. So I found another book, and it was Jonathan Wells' Icons of Evolution. Oh, Icons, sure, Icons of Evolution, yeah. And I read that, and I was really impressed. I said, okay, this guy's a scientist. I know what he hmm. – he knows what he's talking about. And then, then I discovered uh, Luster Media movies mm-hmm. and, and watched all the ones I could get my hands on. And so I discovered Stephen Meyer and Jay Richards and um, – Mike Behe and Mike Behe and you know, then Darwin's Black Box, right? And the Privileged Planet, and I and then I discovered, hey, these guys, Discovery Institute's a big name in intelligent design, and uh, Discovery Institute is in Seattle. In your backyard, there I'm you go. back in my backyard. So I I read the Descent from Darwin list, the statement, and I read it and thought very carefully. And said, yes, I can agree to everything here. I don't know that intelligent design is the answer, mm-hmm. but I am sure I have doubts about Darwin. Yeah. So I signed that statement. And And this would have been about when? Um, 2003. Okay, yeah. 2003 to 2004, I taught a homeschool biology course for high schoolers. And um, we... I designed it specifically so that we would go through the standard material using a standard textbook, and we would discuss along the way some of the issues that things raised. And at the end, we had a dialogue about evolution and intelligent design, and we watched some of Illustra Media's videos. Mm. And the course was well-received, but no one signed up that next year, 2004 fall, for any courses. And I had just put my kids into a Catholic school. And so my teaching was supposed to help pay for it. Right. And I, suddenly everybody just went away. And I remember saying to God, why? <laughs> <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do now? So um, a friend, this would have been August of 2004, Steve Meyer had just published his paper on the Cambrian explosion in in the proceedings, yeah. In the proceedings from Smithsonian, and everybody was all upset Up in about arms. it. <laughs> yeah, and so a friend sent me Nota Bene, which is Discovery Institute's sort of uh, flagship newsletter, describing all of this. And I thought, oh, well, this is cool. And I said, I wonder what will happen if I sign my name and gauge your PhD. <laughs> to, the, to this descent thing, you mean? To right. the, the the sign up list for I already signed the descent list. Oh, I see. For uh, the nota to get nota bene, you mean? To get nota bene. I see. Yep. So twenty minutes later, after I sent it off, I got a phone call from <laughs> twenty minutes. <laughs> From Logan Gage, who was working uh, at sure, sure. Institute at the time. Uh, Logan's and, on top of it. Wow. Wow. And uh, he said, I see you uh, have a PhD. <laughs> and I said, yes. He said, I see you live in Seattle. I said, yes. I see you've signed the Descent from Darwin list. Yes. <laughs> at this point, you feel like you're being interrogated or something. <laughs> what, what did I do wrong? <laughs> no, nothing, nothing like that. I knew that he was interested. And then okay. um, he said... Uh, 
we're having a seminar. Steve Meyer is going to be talking at Bear Creek School. And would you like to come? And I hmm. said, I'm already signed up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> then there was a long pause because he didn't know what to do next. And I said, can I send you my CV? <laughs> uh, right. Non-scientist CV is like a resume. He said, yes. So I worked on it for, I don't know, an hour or so to bring it up to date. And I sent it off. And 20 minutes later, another phone call. Oh, wow. (laughs) And he said, can you come talk to Steve Meyer? (laughs) So two weeks later, I was at the Discovery Institute in a conference room. And in walked Jay Richards. Oh, yeah, sure. In walked, I'm blanking, uh, Icons of Evolution. um, Oh, Jonathan, yeah, sure. Jonathan Wells. And then in what Steve Meyer, and there may have been yet another there. All, all the folks you knew from the, from uh, the yeah, I was really, I was really kind of awed by it. And now I knew Discovery Institute was a think tank, and so I was all prepared to tell them about how I wanted to write a textbook. Uh. But they kept asking me about my research, what I had done. Mm-hmm. And in particular, they were interested in the stuff I did at MIT. And I had no clue why. I kept thinking, but they're in my head. This is a think tank. They don't have test tubes and centrifuges and right. incubators. What? Why are they asking me about my research? Well, after the uh, interview was over, I went home. And a few days later, I got a phone call from Doug Axe. Right. Turns out he was just back in town from being in London, well, Cambridge. Yeah. And he he was going to be starting a lab. And they were just beginning the process, and I popped up out of the woodwork. <laughs> mm, yeah, so, yeah. So he, he offered me the job doing research after all those time, all his time. And I remember going home after he offered me the job. And falling back on the, my bed with my arms spread out and saying, God, now I see why you had me study science. Mm. I had no idea. You are mm. amazing. You bounced me from hither to yon and ended up in Seattle. And then I decided to sign up for the Nota Bene. And, it, you know, it's just truly amazing. Yeah, just everything coming full circle and. I mean, what a, what a remarkable, you know, sentiment that must have been. I mean, I'm I'm just um, amazed just hearing about it. But you must have just been completely overwhelmed by thinking back about everything you'd been through and coming to this uh-huh. point. I was already fifty, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, you know, how people take stock of their lives at forty or fifty, and I was thinking back over all the stuff that had happened in my life. Yeah. And I said, I can understand this and that and the other and why that happened. And this, But why did you have me go to all those expensive schools and study science for me to stay home right. as a homeschooling mother? <laughs> well, and, and, if, and if you'll allow me, I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily get too gender specific here, but if you'll allow me, Anne, um, I think you've been a big inspiration to women who are coming up through the ranks, as well as those who are, you know, have raised their children and are thinking of going back to work in science, because that's mm-hmm. been something that you've done. 
Uh, Can you speak to that just a little bit? I know you don't view yourself necessarily as a hero in this regard, but I think a lot of, a lot of women do. You've you've been a great inspiration to people in the intelligent design community in that regard. Well, I didn't plan it. Um, I didn't, you know, set my sights on, I'm going to overthrow evolution. (laughs) Yeah. My experience has been always that uh, somehow being a woman makes you second class. Mm. Uh, that your 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 input is not as readily accepted. And quite frequently, I've seen it happen that I make a suggestion in a room full of people brainstorming, and nobody pays attention to me. But <laughs> but five minutes later, a guy will say the exact same thing, and everybody will say, "That's oh, great brilliant." Idea. <laughs> Well, and this was a very male-dominated, I mean, even coming into, certainly in your, you mentioned back at MIT, uh, male-dominated science department there, but even in the intelligent design movement. I mean, if you look at all of the primary, you mentioned the people you read, you know, Philip Johnson, Jonathan Wells, and, and Mike, and, and Steve, and yeah. everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so you were kind of the, <laughs> you know, the tip of the spear, if you will, in terms of women coming in and being really engaged, I think, and helpful in the intelligent design movement. I deliberately tried to foster young women who came to the summer seminar. Mm. I, I wanted to encourage them that it is something that can be done, but also to let them know that they're going to face difficulties that men don't face, mm. particularly having a family. Yeah. That is really hard. And finding an advisor who respects you and will listen to you and not treat you like second class. The other thing is to persevere. Mm-hmm. To, to persevere, I have this vivid mental picture of myself. <laughs> when I first started at a Discovery Institute, just about everybody I met was super tall. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Meyer is very tall. Doug Axe is very tall. Jay Richards is very tall. A lot of the major players are very tall. Jonathan Wells and Mike Behe are not. <laughs> Those are the exceptions. And so... Um, one day we were standing on the street corner and I was talking to um, Doug and Steve and uh, fellow Brendan Dixon, who's also very tall. And then there was me and I was talking to everybody with my head back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, okay, I don't fit here. <laughs> I'm a woman and I'm short. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just the, the mental image that I had for a long time was that I was like a little terrier dog. When I had something to say, <laughs> I would be barking at the Great Danes, woof, woof, down at their feet. And uh, so I learned pretty quickly that if I wanted anything to be heard, I had to be persistent. I see. Interesting. Well, that's well. you've certainly been successful in that. I think that your contributions have been so tremendous. And I know that you've, I I didn't want to mention any particular names, but I know there are some young women who are coming up through the ranks that you've mentored and who are in their own right now starting to make some significant contributions. So that's been a big deal. Yeah. It's a, it's a great thing. On more than one occasion at the summer seminar, I will end by saying, all right, I want someone here to replace me Mm. (laughs) because I'm not going to be around forever. We need women in, in the intelligent design movement, women have something to offer that's distinct from what men offer. And it's still good science, but the way of approaching it can 
be different. And the way of working in collaboration is different. So women can contribute in unique ways that may not be as as common among men. Mm-hmm. I have more than once at the engineering group say, hey, guys, <laughs> biology is not made up of nuts and screws and <laughs> and a little metal motors. You have to understand it's a different thing. It works like engineered structure in its outcome, but it's not made up of the same things. A molecular motor may function to do a job like an engineered motor would, but the way it's put together is distinct. You have to know the details of how it actually looks and how it actually works. And in fact, I would say, uh, from my knowledge of the ATP ACE rotary motor and the flagellar motor, that the fact that it works the way it does is even more amazing than if we designed it the way we thought it should be designed. Yeah, 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 and it's that continues just, to be. It's it's a truly amazing, wonderful, miraculous thing to see. Yeah. Definitely. So, Anne, if you're willing to talk about it, have you had any experiences when you've been challenged or even attacked personally or professionally in your career due to your support of intelligent design? Oh, yeah. My first public speaking engagement after the movie Metamorphosis was made. Mm. Paul Nelson and I were going on a tour speaking at a number of different places about the movie. And my very first talk in public was to be at the Natural Science Museum at, I think, the University of Arizona. I'm not positive on that. And there were two things I was afraid of. <laughs> I was very scared. I was afraid someone was going to stand up and shoot me. <laughs> the other thing I was afraid of was that there would be an entomologist in the audience who would challenge me. Now, entomologist go. is someone who studies insects in particular, the movie was about metamorphosis in insects, mm-hmm. and I know a fair amount about metamorphosis and about insects, but I am by no means an entomologist, so I was scared of both of those things. So guess what? <laughs> you didn't get Can shot, you I think. see it coming? <laughs> I didn't get shot, but the very pers- first person to stand up was a professor of entomology. Oh, boy. <laughs> and he, he lit into me because mm. he said, we were both from the same department of zoology, and one of the professors on my committee was the one who wrote the proposed theory of metamorphosis. And that, that man, Jim Truman, was also his advisor. So he, he stated all of this up front, and then he said, uh, hang, so, hang on, hang on. He, you're saying he had gone to the University of Washington with you? Or yeah, in the- well, he, he graduated before I did. Okay. But he was at the same department and studied with Jim Truman, who was on my committee. And now he's down in Arizona listening to your talk. Yeah. <laughs> Another part to the story is in my qualifying exam, it was an oral exam and the professors could ask you just about anything they wanted. Right. And um, although evolution was not my area of study, I kept getting asked evolution questions. Hmm. And one of the final ones was from Jim Truman, and he said, um, so 
if you had to say, what would you, how would you say that hemimetabolous and holometabolous insects evolved? Now, hemimetabolous is like grasshoppers or um, crickets. They they grow as starting out looking like little mini grasshoppers or crickets. And with each molt, they get bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. until they're the adult form. And with holometabolous insects, that's the kind of insect which has a larval stage like a caterpillar, and then it goes into a, a chrysalis or a cocoon stage where it changes its body plan completely from caterpillar to Yeah, the metamorphosis adult. you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, he wanted to know how it happened. And I had no idea. So I, I, you know, I said, well, if I had to say maybe this, and then I gave him a reason. And after the exam was all over, I said to him, so what's the answer? And he said, no one knows. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That's great. All right. So fast, fast forward to, to Arizona. You're giving this talk. This fellow who had been at the same department stands up and what happened next? He said, do you know about the theory of metamor- uh, metamorphosis that Jim Truman wrote? I said, yes, I do. First slide. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to make my statement. He said, but what about what's on page three? Now, I uh, don't know about you, but if someone asks <laughs> you um, a question like that in the middle of a, a talk, I had no clue what he was talking about. Yeah. And finally, finally, he just kept battering me with it, never got specific, and So he said, okay, and he sat down. Next guy up, he said, you're a liar and a fraud. Wow, wow. (laughs) And it was because of something that happened at a conference that Discovery Institute sponsored where I presented my research and Doug Axe asked me to go over an interesting result that I had found a mutation in bacteria that could allow them to grow in very, very, very low concentrations of BioF. And it's sort of, the, the details don't matter. The, the thing that matters is that it, I had seen something happen that wasn't supposed to happen, mm. but it, it disproved my research, so to speak. It didn't, actually, because the reason it, it did what it did is because bacteria are really good at scavenging Iowa from the media because okay. it is so important and you only need like three or four molecules of BioF to get the job done. Mm. And so what was happening was that cells were scavenging BioF from the bacteria that died. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So we proved that by putting down a compound that binds very strongly to BioF and makes it inaccessible to the bacteria on the plates, and then suddenly they couldn't grow at all. Right. So that was a story I told when the guy challenged me at the the meeting, the Wistar meeting we went to. And then the professor at from the Wistar meeting, I won't say his name, but he uh, violated an agreement he had made for confidentiality. And he posted the story of his experience at the Wisdom meeting, and he, frankly, made things up. Mm. Either that or I have to say he didn't understand a thing that was going on. <laughs> <laughs> he misrepresented what Doug did, and then he misrepresented 
what I did. And in particular, he emphasized, I had found a mutant that worked and I wouldn't, didn't report it. So this guy at this meeting in, in um, Arizona says, you're a fraud. <laughs> You're a liar. You know wow. you haven't re- reported this meet this uh, mutant, and so I stood up and told the whole story again, and uh, he wouldn't back down. He just, mm. you know, finally, I think Paul said or I said, you know, you really need to sit down because other people have other questions to ask. Yeah, and he he did. The evening was very uncomfortable because nobody wanted to accept anything we said and uh, but when it was over people came crowding around with more questions and we were off the stage and and down by the seats talking and this this circle of people formed around us and suddenly it it wasn't nearly as hostile they were interested yeah and they wanted to talk about it and we talked i don't know how long finally the facilities <laughs> so we're closing up. said, we're closing, you need to get outside. So we went yeah. out and stood on the porch and talked for more. Oh, and wow. People were just really interested. Hmm. And some of them, you know, one of them said to me, you know, I've been an atheist in this place for a long time. And I have to say, you know, it's, it's really uncomfortable being an atheist because people are always saying to, to you, you're going to burn, go to hell. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to you. And I think that there might be more faith in your heart than you know. And everybody's on a journey, a learning curve. And the fact that you're here and talking to us means that you still have questions. I love it. That's great. So. That's great. Well, that's quite a contrast between the the way the Q&A started out to the discussions that spilled out onto the, the sidewalk after. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I agree. It made the difference, all the difference. If I had to go home after the just the question and answer period, I would have been pretty much in despair. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that experience. I know there's can be challenges, certainly. And, and you've been out there in front and kind of taking some of the brunt of that. So we appreciate it. Well, Anna, as we get toward the the top of the hour here, let me ask you just a couple of additional sort of takeaway questions. So first of all, you know, in the face of lots of challenges that you've experienced, both by bouncing around as you describe it, but also some of the challenges of being in a male dominated field here, why, why have you kept at it? Why does it matter to you that you continue to, to voice your views on design in the world? Well, like I said, I'm a little persistent terrier barking at the few <laughs> giants. And I want people to know that beauty is real, mm. truth is real, goodness is real, and the design of the world is real. And that to throw away God, to say he's unnecessary, is completely wrong. It's not what the evidence shows. So well I want I want people to see what the evidence shows and see for themselves. Yeah. Well I, at, at at the end of se- seminars, sometimes women will come up to me and say, "My husband is an atheist," hmm. and I'll say, "Okay, is he an engineer or a scientist?" And they'll almost invariably say, "Yes," and I'll say. How much does he get out into nature? Yeah. And they'll usually say, 
oh, never. So I'd say, <laughs> take him to someplace beautiful and just let him mm, look. I like that. Uh, it may not work for everybody. Not everybody's sensitive to it. But if you just open your eyes and read about things, discover the remarkable things that animals do and the way that the ecosystem functions, and yeah, it just goes on and on. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings me to my last question, Anne. I was going to ask you, um, if you don't mind sharing, if you had to pick one primary aspect of the natural world that really brings home the evidence for design to you, what would that be? Maybe you could pick, if you want, one intellectual aspect and one more sort of spiritual aspect, if you want. Hmm. Okay, beauty in the world. The fact Mm -hmm. that there are any beautiful things at all. Randomness, there's no selective advantage to being a beautiful tree as opposed to a ugly yeah. tree. And the same with flowers. Flowers are have these amazing colors, and a lot of the, the creatures in the world don't see color. Right. Coral reefs, the fish that swim around the coral reefs are amazingly colored. They have vibrant, almost electric colors, infinite number of different patterns and people go down there because it's so beautiful and they take pictures but to see the colors you have to bring light Mm -hmm. these fish swim around in near darkness and their colors don't show Mm. so the colors are there but only when we look and bring the things necessary to see them why would they be beautiful why would they have those colors if we're the only ones that can see them. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Now, yeah. it, may, it may be there are elements to their colors that some fish can see or not see. Um, maybe it's a disguise for predators. I don't know. But on top of whatever the functional reason might be, it's just plain beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, Anne, thank you so much for being with us today to share your story and why it matters to you to keep pressing forward with intelligent design and following the evidence where it leads. I know I've been very inspired to hear your story, and I'm sure others will be as well. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To hear more inspirational stories from those involved in putting forward the remarkable evidence for design in nature, join us again here at ID the Future or on our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. And if you're uplifted as you listen to these important stories, please consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.